If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. We'll actually be reading all the way through verse 80, and you'll find it there on page 856 in your pew Bibles. If you're visiting with us, we are in a series on Luke's Gospel. It's been a great joy to read of these early pronouncements and predictions of the birth, not only of Jesus, but of John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it's his birth that we read of this morning. So hear God's word, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57 and reading through verse 80. Luke writes, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken. You have spoken in your son, the living word, the eternal word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the one and only, the only begotten of the Father. Lord, you have also spoken in your written word. You have recorded all the deeds, all the ministry of our Savior Jesus, all his words and teaching. So we would come now to your written word and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us this morning that we would not leave this place unchanged, but that we would leave it transformed by your truth and by your grace together as a body of Christ, as the people of God, for the glory of our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
On January 29th, 1985, a baby boy was born in West Monroe, Louisiana. Now you might say that's an ordinary common fact, right? There were lots of baby boys born on that day and that month and that year in Louisiana and really across the country. But this baby was an uncommon baby. His name was Herman Johnson III, and he weighed at birth 15 pounds and 14 ounces. Now, some of you have had six-pound babies. Imagine someone handing you a 10-pound weight and saying, here, carry this around for the next few weeks or months, right? 15 pounds, 14 ounces. As far as I can discover, he is still the largest baby ever born in the state of Louisiana. And yes, he was born by C-section. His doctor told his mother, Karen, that he would grow up to be an LSU Tiger football player. And though he went to high school in Denton, Texas, in the mid-2000s, he came to play lineman at LSU, weighing in at 6 feet 7 inches, 386 pounds. The uncommon circumstances of Herman Johnson's birth led people to know exactly what he would be when he grew up. 15 pounds, 14 ounces, you're a lineman, right? Now, in our text this morning, we see another baby born in uncommon circumstances. The baby's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were, were much older than normal parents. The baby receives a name contrary to the custom of that day. And when his father declares that his name is not going to be Zechariah Jr., He immediately is able to talk and to hear after nine months of being deaf and dumb. But though these circumstances, uncommon as they were, showed that the hand of the Lord was with him, as verse 66 says, those uncommon circumstances actually made the people unsure of what this baby would be when he grew up. You see the question there, what then will this child be? God was up to something, but they didn't know what it was. But here's the thing. We do know. We don't have to wonder what God was up to. We know what God sent John into the world to be. Nor do we have to wonder what God was doing when he disciplined Zechariah. Nor do we have to wonder what God's purposes were in sending his son, Jesus, into the world. We are not in the dark like the people of Judah were. Why? Because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke has told us all of these things in his gospel. This morning in our text, we see the uncommon grace of an uncommon God in the birth of an uncommon baby boy. And God reveals his uncommon grace in at least three ways. First, we see the uncommon grace of God in that God disciplines his people for our good. Secondly, we see his uncommon grace in this, that that God prepares his people for the coming of his son. And third, we see God's uncommon grace in that God rescues his people so that we would serve him without fear. Let's look at these three things together this morning. First, God disciplines his people for our good. For over nine months, since the angel Gabriel had appeared to him in the temple, Zechariah had been unable to 
talk or to hear, as we see in this passage. Now, certainly he could have communicated, and I'm sure he did communicate with Elizabeth, as he does here in verse 63 of our text, or likely a wooden tablet that was covered with wax, right? Being able to write. But, but imagine being deaf and mute for nine months in an era right, way before the advent of, of all the, the words and the images that we have in books, printed books in our homes and the internet and, and closed caption TV screens. Right? Zechariah would have had a lot of time to think, wouldn't he? Nine months of not being able to speak, not being able to hear. And what would he have been thinking about? Well, remember the reason for Zechariah's condition. You go back to the beginning of chapter one and you see that Zechariah had not believed Gabriel's words concerning John's birth. You remember in verse 18, he asked this skeptical question, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And so like a parent sending a child to his room to think about what he has done, God sends Zechariah into this cone of silence, as it were, for nine months to think about God's incredible promise through Gabriel to him and to think about his unbelief in regard to that promise. And clearly, Zechariah did think about it, didn't he? Clearly, he did learn what God intended him to learn. For in his response regarding the name of the promised son, we see plainly that Zechariah repented of his unbelief, of his lack of submission to God's word. The text tells us that eight days after the boy was born, everybody gathered for the the circumcision and the the formal naming ceremony. Evidently in in those days, these two things went together. And in verse 59, we see that the neighbors and the relatives would have called, or, or even better, perhaps we could translate it, were calling him Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth bravely stands up against the the custom of the day and says, no, no, he shall be called John. And and the people vigorously protest, there's no one of your relatives that is named that name, right? What are you doing? Why Why are you bucking the trend? Why are you going against custom? This is the way we always do it around here. And so they make signs to, to Zechariah and, and they, he couldn't hear them or he couldn't hear what Elizabeth was saying. You know, do you hear what your wife is saying? And so they make signs and they say, you know, what do you want to call him? And Zechariah in faith and in obedience to God takes this tablet and writes out in the present tense and in the Greek with emphasis upon the name, John is his name. John is his name. Faith, obedience. There's no question about what we're going to call him because we're already calling him John. He has a name, the name given by God through the angel, that name John that means Yahweh, the Lord is gracious. And that grace, that uncommon grace is shown even in the Lord's temporary judgment of Zechariah. God is disciplining Zechariah these nine months for his sin. His muteness, though, was not a judgment of condemnation, but it was a judgment of discipline. And it was through that discipline that God changed Zechariah's heart from unbelieving and unsubmissive to believing and submissive. Now, 
we tend not to think of discipline, of, of inflicted suffering as the grace of God. Right? We, we tend to think of, of suffering, affliction, trials as, as the opposite of God's grace. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that God's hand of discipline, discipline is his hand of grace. How does the author of the Hebrews put it? In Hebrews 12, 10 and 11, he writes this, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God disciplines us for our good so that we might share his holiness. You see, when God disciplines his people for our sin, with some affliction, with some trial, he is doing us good. He is accomplishing his transforming purposes in our lives. And so I wonder this morning, do you see, do you recognize, do you appreciate, do you thank God for the benefits of affliction? Do you see how God is refining you and sanctifying you? He is making you more like his son through your suffering. And even if that suffering is not the result or, or God's response to some previous sin, even if, if your suffering is more like the way that a, a sports team might run laps and, 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 and do exercises and different tasks, not because they've done something wrong, but in order to prepare them for the season ahead, right? Even if that's why God has sent your suffering, it's still discipline, isn't it? And it's still for your good. Listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 119 Verse 67 puts it, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was good for me, he says, that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Right? Unbelief and sin turned to faith and obedience under the good hand of God, the rod of God. J.C. Ryle is right. He writes this, the sorrow that humbles us and drives us nearer to God is a blessing and a downright gain. No case is more hopeless, he says, than that of the man who in the time of affliction turns his back upon God. Because in that time of affliction, God is showing you his goodness. He is lavishing his uncommon grace upon you. And I would particularly say to you who are older saints, See in Zechariah the great encouragement for you. That, that God is not done with you yet. That there is still rough edges to be shaved off and sanded off. God is at work. Zechariah reminds us that there's never a point in our life where we stop needing to grow, stop needing to be sanctified and to mature. Because of indwelling sin, we, we always constantly have much to learn much sin to put off, much holiness to put on. And God uses our suffering, our afflictions, and how those afflictions increase the older we get. God uses those afflictions and trials to draw us away from sin, away from our own selfish hearts, and toward Christ, and toward holiness. God is going to use your suffering to transform you into the image of his son. This is the uncommon grace of our uncommon God. He disciplines his people for our good. 
But we see his uncommon grace in a second way in, in our text. We see God preparing his people for the coming of his son. Zechariah here in verse 66, or, or Zechariah in his song answers the people's question in verse 66, doesn't he? This is a spirit-filled prophecy. We, we call it the Benedictus. Again, just like the Magnificat was the first word in the Latin translation, so the word Benedictus comes from the first word in the Latin, blessed be. And in verse 76 of this glorious song, Zechariah tells us what John will be. He declares that John will be the prophet of the Most High, for he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, in these words of Zechariah, he is alluding to two passages of the Old Testament. First, to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, that, that writes, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way. He will prepare the way before me. And then also, Isaiah chapter 40 Verse 3, a voice is calling, clear, prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. You see, God sent John into the world to be that prophetic voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus to come to his people. John came to, to fill those valleys, to, to, to level the hills, to cut down the trees, to grade the road. Right, to grade the dirt, to lay the asphalt, to prepare the way for the coming of King Jesus, the King of glory. John was the advance team, as it were, coming beforehand to get everything ready for Jesus to arrive. Imagine if President Biden were to come and speak in, in Jackson. Imagine the way that his own staff and, and state and local, local officials and, and employees would, would be busy preparing the city for his arrival, right? They'd be cleaning things up. They'd be filling in potholes. They'd been figuring out all the different, you know, logistics of the visit. They'd been securing the venue. They'd be figuring out the itinerary, making sure he was safe, making sure that, that, that everyone who needed to be there was there, Right? making sure traffic flowed properly, all those sorts of details that the advance team comes and, and makes sure is, is in place to ready the town for the visit of the president. Well, in the same way, John came to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we read that, that John came preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand, clearing the path. For King Jesus' coming. And that role of John as prophetic preparer tells us that very thing about Jesus, that he is the king. Right? It tells us that, that Jesus is the Lord of glory, the king who has a forerunner, who goes before him. You see, it's not just the wise men who declared that Jesus was born a king. It's John's very existence as his role of, of prophetic preparer, a forerunner, the advanced team. It shows us, it teaches us that Jesus is the king who was prophesied long ago and who has come into this world. But how does John prepare Jesus's way? Well, the answer is by preparing God's people for Jesus's coming. He prepares Jesus's way by preparing us to hear what Jesus has to say if you look back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, you see this very thing. Gabriel says to Zechariah, And he, John, will turn many of the children of Israel 
to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And don't we see in this role of John the uncommon grace of our uncommon God? He doesn't merely send his son, but he sends one to make us ready to hear and to receive his son. He doesn't merely send a savior, but he sends one to show us our sin and to make us recognize that we need a savior. He shows us our need for salvation, our need for the forgiveness of sins, our need to put sin to death. God doesn't merely plant seeds, but he tills up the ground. He prepares the soil, as it were, to get it ready for the seed implanted. Again, Matthew 3, verse 2, right before John said the kingdom of God is at hand, he said this word, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God sent John into the world to call us to repentance and to point to Jesus, the King, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God sent John into the world that we might look to Jesus, that we might turn from sin to Jesus in faith and be saved. God also sent John into the world to make us recognize that it is possible to say you are a child of God and not actually be one in truth because you bear no fruits in keeping with repentance. We'll see this more when we get to the, the narrative of John's first proclamation in chapter three, we'll hear him speak to the Jews. Don't say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. You see, children here, just because your parents are Christians, just because you're growing up in a church as covenant children, that doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. Perhaps you've even made a profession of faith. You've professed faith with your lips. That doesn't mean that your heart has truly been changed. You can't smuggle your way into the kingdom of God in the backpack of your parents. Your heart must be changed. Your sins must be forgiven. You must bear the fruits of genuine faith and repentance. I cannot emphasize this point enough. How many in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are unbelievers? Even though they've made a profession of faith or they're growing up in a Christian home and yet their heart has never been changed, they've not been born again. John's role as prophetic forerunner, prophetic preparer of the way, presses upon us, presses upon our consciences that it is possible to be a fake. It is possible to be a false professor and not a genuine believer. Even today, John's miraculous birth, his bold ministry are designed to, to ready us, to wake us up, to shake us, to till our hearts up so that we might believe in Jesus Christ by faith alone and that we might walk answerably to that faith. And this work of preparation by John is the uncommon grace of our uncommon God. Well, lastly, we see that uncommon grace and this glorious truth that God 
rescues his people so that we would serve him without fear. Now, next Sunday, Carl is going to look more specifically at Zechariah's song, uh, but, but it's going to be the lessons in Carol service. You won't want to miss it. Uh, but the, the sermon's always a little bit shorter during that service. And, and so because there's so much for us in this song, Zechariah's song to learn, I, I want to point out a few things that Carl's not going to get to next week. This morning, I want you to see that Zechariah praises God for what he is accomplishing, not merely through John's birth, but through the birth of Jesus to Elizabeth's relative Mary. Look at the verbs that he uses there in those opening lines, verse 68, 69. God has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. All these words, visit, redeem, raised up a horn of salvation, saved, delivered, they're all ultimately synonyms, declaring that the incarnation of Jesus is a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission. That's what the birth of, of the baby is all about. It's a rescue mission, God rescuing sinners. Now, you may read that word visit there in verse 68, and the first thing that might come to your mind is a friend dropping by to hang out. No, like, that's not the connotation of the word visit here, right? It's a, a visit, not just to hang out, but a visit to rescue, to give deliverance, to give help. It's God being concerned with his people's predicament and God rushing to the scene to look in, to check in, to deliver, to help, to change their circumstances. This is a, a doctor making a house call to a sick and dying baby. Right? This is the power companies that every year come from all around the country, wherever there's been a hurricane, visiting, bringing the power back on. God has visited his people to save us by his mighty power. That, that word, horn of salvation, don't think, you know, trumpet, bugle, no, no. Think the horn of an ox, the horn of a, of a ram, right? a strong horn, a mighty horn, a powerful horn. God has come with his might, with his power to deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Now, God's people have always had enemies, both physical and spiritual. Right? There are physical enemies to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are real flesh and blood humans who hate God's people, enemies who seek to do the church of God harm. And Christians in this life do not yet see the, the fullness of deliverance from these physical foes, particularly if you live in, in countries where Christians are persecuted and killed and under constant threat for their lives and their livelihood. We don't see the fullness of that deliverance yet, though we will see it in due time. But Christians also have spiritual enemies, don't we? Before God acted to save us, we had spiritual enemies, sin, the world, the flesh, the devil. They held us in slavery, the Bible tells us. And this is why Zechariah tells us that, that God has visited and redeemed his people. What does it mean to redeem something? It means to, to buy it back out of slavery, out of bondage, by the payment of a price. The Bible teaches that we were bought out of our slavery to sin, out of our slavery to Satan, out of the condemnation unto death. 
We were purchased. We were redeemed. Even as the children of Israel were redeemed from their slavery in Egypt, in both Exodus stories, in, in the story in the book of Exodus, in the story in the Gospels, the Exodus that Jesus accomplished, the price of deliverance, the price of redemption is the shedding of blood. In the old covenant, it was the Passover lamb. In the new covenant, it is the blood of the true Passover lamb, the true firstborn son, Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of the woman who crushes the head of Satan by his head being bruised. Jesus comes to take away the sins of the world, not just Israel, but the whole world. People from every race, every tribe, every tongue and nation. Now, Zechariah didn't understand everything that Paul would eventually write about the way that Jesus's blood is the purchase price to satisfy God's holy justice. But Zechariah knew that in Jesus's appearing, in his coming, God is accomplishing the ultimate redemption from sin and death and fear. This redemption, this spiritual rescue is at the forefront of Zechariah's mind, both in the sense of delivering us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. Look down at verse 77. Zechariah speaks of the knowledge of salvation that God gives to his people, consisting in the forgiveness of their sins. Right, Carl's going to speak more about that next week. But, but this morning, I want you to, to look back at, at verse 74 and 75. It's not just the penalty of sin that God redeems us from, but it's also the power of sin. He speaks in these two verses of the fruit of the forgiveness that the believer receives. He says, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness all of our days. In the book of Exodus from Egypt, what was God doing? What was God doing in the Exodus? He was seeking worshipers, wasn't he? Nine times he says in some way, shape, or form to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might serve me. Serving God without fear and holiness and righteousness. That's why Pharaoh had to let God's people go. That's why Satan is defeated. God saves us, his people, to be a holy people. Not because we're already holy, but so that we might become holy that we might be set apart, devoted to good deeds. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to walk in these good deeds, that he has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. We are even now being transformed into the image of God's Son. This is our destination. This is our goal. Right? God's salvation does not make us passive. It doesn't make us sort of sit back and say, hey, we're in. We don't have to do anything now. No, rather, it makes us pursuers of, of holiness and righteousness. Jesus was born to die, and he died, as Titus 2 tells us, to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The author of the Hebrews puts it in a nutshell, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. He's not saying, if you don't, if you're not holy, you're, you're not going to be saved in the sense that you, you, you won't earn your salvation. No, what he's saying is, if you're not holy, you haven't been saved. Because God's uncommon grace saves us, not because of our holiness, but
unto holiness, unto a life of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this song of Zechariah, particularly verses 74 and 75, they tell us that if we're not fearlessly seeking holiness and righteousness, fearlessly, not caring what the world thinks about our striving for obedience, then we must ask ourselves, are we really saved? Do we really know King Jesus? Have we bowed the knee to him? Are we trusting in him alone for our salvation? Because those whom Jesus saves, those whom he redeems, those whom he delivers, he doesn't do it halfway. He saves us all the way or not at all. He both forgives us and he frees us. He changes us. He pulls us out of the sewer that we were drowning in and then he wipes all that raw sewage off of us. He cleanses us. As we were saying to the children, his name is Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek for the Hebrew Yeshua. Yeshua, Yahweh saves His name is Jesus, the angel tells Joseph, because he will save his people from their sins. Listen to that word, sins, plural. Yes, he saves us from our sin, from the guilt of our sin, but he also saves us from our sins, plural, from those concrete acts and words and thoughts and deeds. He saves us fully from all those sins that so easily Entangle us. Now, to be sure, we do not experience the fullness, the completeness of that salvation from sins in this lifetime. We look forward to the day when just as we will be saved fully from those who hate us, so we will be saved fully from even the practice of sin and the presence of sin. That's the day we long for. That's why we long, as the saints of old long for Jesus to come we long for him to come again. Because on that day, the fullness of what Zechariah sings will come to be. And until that day, we hear the words of the author to the Hebrews and we live them out. Listen to Hebrews 12. So let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is your Savior. He says, I have come to redeem you from every lawless deed. I have come to deliver you and to save you from sin and from sins. Walk in me, abide in me, follow me, live for me. May we submit and bow the knee in repentance and faith, even as Zechariah shows us in this passage, that for the glory of King Jesus, we might live and tell everyone we meet what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your uncommon grace, for your mercies that are new every morning. Oh Lord, would you give us grace to walk in the light of your word, in the light of your finished work in Jesus Christ and your ongoing work in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your rich salvation, your full salvation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and until that day,
Give us voice as you gave Zechariah voice to sing your praise and to declare to all we meet the good things that you are doing and have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.